hppodcraft.com. We're going. We're rolling. Okay. But still the pole star leers down from the same place in the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye which strives to convey some strange message, yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. Sometimes, when it is cloudy, I can sleep. Ooh. That sounded very, uh, mysterious. It did. What, what's that from? That's from Polaris, a story by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. And this happens to be the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. That is so crazy that Rachel Ford just read that. And, and she read it very well, I Very must well, say. indeed. And then we just so happen to be discussing that story today. We are discussing that. And yeah. by we, I mean... Well, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPpodcraft.com. Well, look at all that. Rachel is an actress who agreed today to read some of the story for us, as well as a few other quotes. Yes, she's uh, going to be our reader for this one. Uh, because Polaris, the gender of, of the narrator is uh, somewhat ambiguous. So we thought maybe we'd get away with having it be a woman. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lovecraft was probably writing a male character, but right. wanted to have some more female voices on the show. So thank and, you, Rachel. And by more, you mean... One, this is our first. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Unless you count mine, which sometimes... No, Chad, you sound very manly. Thank you very much. What's the story about, Chris? Well, the story is about the narrator, who of course is never named, lives in a swamp, in a house near a swamp, and has trouble sleeping. The, the star Polaris mm -hmm. keeps you know, blinking at him hideously, he says, and mm -hmm. kind of troubles him. And he goes to sleep eventually. Well, you know, I love that that, that setup, right? In the, and that was what we heard in the first paragraph at the opening, mm -hmm. was that, you know, that this North Star, Polaris, is always looking down on him. And it immediately identifies that we're in a swamp, that he's got a house, and that this guy's a creep. <laughs> because it's always the creeps who don't want things looking at him. You know what I mean? It reminds me of, like, like he'd be the kind of guy who would have pictures of women pasted up in his, on his walls in his house, but he'd have all the eyes blacked out. <laughs> Because it's only like, <laughs> he only gets into it if they, they can't see him. They can't see him. Anyway. Uh, so you said he falls asleep. He falls asleep and he, and he dreams of this, uh, this, this faraway land. Right. He, well, I think actually it mentions really quickly in the story that there was an aurora in the swamp. Yes. Yeah, there's a, a aurora over his house. And, and, and shortly after that, he has this dream in which he envisions a city. Yeah, a marble city lying on a plateau between two peaks. And then Polaris is in the sky still. Right. So the astronomy the same, is the, the same, same. In the same place, yeah. Polaris is in the same place. Right. And he sees some people, he hears them talking, but he doesn't really know. Yeah, he kind of walks around like a ghost in this marble city. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody sees him, but he observes. Hmm. And then eventually, you know, he keeps dreaming again of the city. Yeah. And there's like these kind of men in robes that walk around and they talk about different things. And he wonders what his place is in this. Exactly. Thing. And then eventually he just kind of materializes and becomes part of the story. Right. And the city or is city, called uh, Olatho. And uh, he has a friend. He just already has this history when he becomes this person. He has a friend named Alos. Yes. Who uh, tells him that the Inutos are coming to attack. Yeah. Who are the Inutos? The Inutos are... <laughs> Inutos are sort of... He describes them uh, as yellow-skinned monsters, I believe. <laughs> I think here's the quote. Squat, hellish yellow fiends who five years ago had appeared out of the unknown west to ravage the confines of our kingdom and to besiege many of our towns. Yeah. So they're squat and they're, and they're yellow. 
hellish yellow. Yellow. Now his people, on the other hand, I think are gray and they're tall and they're very noble. Yeah, they're they're kind of a very cultured civilization that has a great history. And in right. fact, he when he goes there, he studies the Nakotic manuscripts. That's right, the Nakotic manuscripts, which is kind of the first time that Lovecraft kind of throws down a tome or a book, and you know this is kind of a, a trend in his stories. They're, so he 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 just came up with this book. That's not a real thing. I believe, yeah, the Nakotic manuscripts, as far as I know, is is fictional. Okay, cool. And then Lovecraft, we know as we talked about before, he made up the Necronomicon and lots of other books yes. that supposedly had forbidden knowledge in them later, and this would yes, be the yes. first example of that happening. That's very cool. So, um, so anyway, they're, they're at war with those, uh, with those people. Mm-hmm. The Inuits? The Inutos. Inutos, excuse yes. me. The Inutos. <laughs> Although Inuits. it does sound strangely like Inuit, It doesn't sure it? does. Uh, and his people enough. are noble, while the yellow people are subhuman, and uh, they, they are great warriors in his city, but they're outnumbered. Yeah. by these Inutos who, who are coming to attack. And his buddy Alos is an awesome warrior, but he unfortunately is kind of a weakling, right? Yes. And so he gets the task of being the lookout. And here's a quote that describes that. To me, Alos denied the warrior's part, for I was feeble and given to strange faintings when subjected to stress and hardships. But my eyes were the keenest in the city, despite the long hours I gave each day to the study of the narcotic manuscripts and the wisdom of the Zobnarian fathers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lovecraft uh, in this story really throws out wacky names it's of so places. It's so science fiction. Yeah, it's really overly complicated for no real reason. But anyway, before I start my commentary, yeah, sure. Uh, um, so he gets the job as lookout, and he goes up, and he's, he's you know, he's looking out. Well, it's night, right. stars in the sky. He's looking up at it. Yeah, he kind of starts drifting off, and he hears this voice kind of speaking to him, like you know, he's half awake, half asleep. Right, and the voice says. Uh, Slumber, watcher, till the spheres six and twenty thousand years have revolved and I return to the spot where now I burn. Other stars anon shall rise to the axis of the skies, stars that soothe and stars that bless with a sweet forgetfulness. Only when my round is o'er shall the past disturb thy door. That sounded magical. It, it was magical because he wakes up not at his watchtower where he was before, but back in the swamp. Oh my goodness, it's almost as if the dream has become the reality, and his reality has become a dream. Exactly, and the story ends with him saying, I must wake up from this dream and get back to my watchtower duty. Mm. Uh, and that's it, that's the big twist. So he, yeah, the big the big twist is that uh, he's failing them because he's asleep. Anytime those Inutos are, are going to attack, yeah. some narrow pass. And Actually, the, the story does have kind of a... A really horrifying uh, twist at, at the end that we haven't mentioned in this quote. But still these shadows of my dreams deride me. They say there is no land of Loma, save in my nocturnal imaginings, that in these realms where the pole star shines high and red Aldebaran crawls low around the horizon, there has been naught save ice and snow for thousands of years of years, and never a man save squat yellow creatures blighted by the cold called Eskimo. Yeah. So I believe that what he's implying is that the Eskimo are there because he failed at his job to stop them. Yeah. The last time the pole star was in this exact position in the sky. Right. That's right. that's the horror of the story. That's the horror of the story that those uh, dreadful Eskimos those live. Horrible Eskimos <laughs> with their igloos and their their furry coats. <laughs> their abhorrent pies and their their <laughs> Abhorrent pot. Oh, right, They're yeah. dreadful kisses. <laughs> <laughs> the fluttering. Oh, God, the fluttering. 
So, um, and that's the end of the story. That's one of the things. But you know, before we we jump into uh, this, there's there's something that I, I think really we really need to talk about H.P. Lovecraft in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really trying not to make any excuses here, but uh, Lovecraft was a racist, right? Uh, and this story really kind of points out that that he's that he's a racist. You yeah, know? I actually, you know, we talked about Dagon last week, and there was even an element in that story that has the xenophobic kind of expresses that because he's partly the reason that he's horrified at the end of the story is he's like those fish people are down there worship they have different traditions than us yeah and they're doing things that we don't understand right right not that they're murdering children or that they're you know gobbling up babies or uh that they're even killing infants i just said the same thing three times but (laughs) (laughs) it is the most horrible thing you can do you think so but he just hates them for their otherness yeah, yeah. And some people might be turned off by the fact that he is a racist. Usually it doesn't pop up in his stories, but occasionally it does, and there's some other stories where yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll address it at the time. Right. But for me personally, I, I'm able to separate the man mm-hmm. and his faults from his work. Sure, absolutely. And I personally have people from an older generation in my life yeah. that are still racist. And uh, you pointed out before that, that Lovecraft's wife was Jewish. Yes, and you know he changed his mind about now on on his feelings about racism. I don't know if he changed his mind much, but you know he started out as almost a, a, a monarchist and wound up being a socialist. I mean, yes. this is a guy who changed with the times, as a right. lot of people do. Right. But I agree with you. You know, while I find it kind of repellent, some of this language in yes. here, <laughs> I do too. I think you know, let's choose to look at some of the conceptual stuff that maybe drove sci-fi. And, oh, right. and weird tales rather than I mean, and that's I mean, this is kind of an important conversation to have and I want to have it now before, mm-hmm. so we don't keep having this over and over right again. on right on. Uh, you know if, if you remember Barack Obama's he gave his speech and uh, his campaign when the Reverend Wright stuff came out right you know and I thought it was a very eloquent speech uh, mm-hmm. despite any political beliefs you may have uh, he talked about the fact that people can still be good and still have this problem with racism. Right. And personally, I think racism stems out of out of ignorance and not any real necessary like evilness. Yes, it's ignorance and it's perhaps blaming the problems that you have on other groups of people, you know, right. to maybe explain them and make yourself feel better. And and just because you don't understand them. Like my personal interactions with my older generation people in my mm-hmm. life that have racist tendencies they seem to be very inconsistent with them. Yeah. Like when, if they meet somebody of a different nationality or di- different ethnicity and mm-hmm. they like them, they seem to kind of ignore the fact that they are different in any way and they just right. like them. But if there's a problem, it's easy to blame it on this yes, uh, yes. minority. Although I will, the, probably the hardest thing for me to swallow about this story is that I, most of the Eskimos I've met are kind of assholes. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know many Eskimos at all. Uh, yeah, I've never met an Eskimo <laughs> before. Um, bring up also, the story was written in uh, 1918. Oh, okay. But it wasn't published in you know the typical fair. It was, was this was an amateur journal, the Philosopher, that it was published in. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily presented as weird fiction. No, no, it wasn't. Um, you know, it didn't make it into weird tales like right. much of his work eventually did. Um, I, I think it probably didn't make it in there because it's not very good. <laughs> there's some there's some great ideas. I mean, like, I 
I really didn't like it the first couple times I right. read it. But the more I started doing my research and the more I started, you know, uh, really looking at it and thinking about it, there's mm-hmm. some cool ideas. Yeah. And I warmed up to it. But I would definitely tell people never read this story. <laughs> yeah. Um, unless you're really into H.P. Lovecraft. I don't have it on my computer here, but I wrote down on the notes that I was reading. This is my great joke I wanted to open up with. Polaris? More like embarrass. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd save that for I'm the a, end I'm of the ashamed. Yeah, I'm ashamed. It's a shame that you didn't uh, yeah, I know. use that at the beginning. Well, I don't know. I thought I might sell that to somebody. That's Yeah, you might make a pretty penny and only a penny on that. <laughs> Lovecraft wrote a lot of stories yeah. about dreams. In fact, Polaris was also inspired by a dream. Yeah. Yes. Oh, really? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, what was that? He described in a letter, Several nights ago, I had a strange dream of a strange city. A city of many palaces and gilded domes, lying in a hollow betwixt ranges of gray and horrible hills. I was, as I said, aware of the city, visually. I was in it and around it, but certainly I had no corporeal existence. Wow. So yeah, he he was he was like walking around. He had this dream of him like as a ghost walking around in the city, and, and that was the whole, you know, thrust of hmm. you know the... You know, I've I have had uh Actually, Rachel and I were just talking about this the other day. I, I've frequently in my life had dreams where uh, I live somewhere, and then in my dream I open a door and I find a whole other level of the house or a whole yeah. room that wasn't there before. I've had those before, yeah. yeah. Where there's like a, like a secret attic that you yeah. never knew was there, and you get up and it's huge. It's huge, and it's really cool, and you yeah. don't know why nobody's taking why, it. Why is, why is nobody in this attic? This yeah. is awesome. Yeah. But I've never dreamt of a, like... No, no, that's not true. I've, I've had dreams of cities... Nothing is more interesting than hearing other people talk about their dreams. Uh, <laughs> but I have dreams of cities that are amalgams of cities that I've lived in. Right. You know, like I've lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in Santa Monica, Pittsburgh, mm. my hometown. And I've had dreams where I'm in these places that are – it has like maybe a mountain of Pittsburgh. But it's right. you know it's a, a street of, of Los Angeles. Mm. And then there's like buildings of my hometown, which right. are you know, the Quad Cities. And, you know, like, that's the only thing that I could even find that's comparable to this sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. thing that I could say about this story that's a clear theme is World War One and the uh, when we address Dagon, but in, in here. So Lovecraft had, you know, he, he couldn't go fight. No, no, no. Yeah, he was really sickly, and, and this is obvious. He wrote this when the war was still going on. No, wait. Well, it was 1917. 1918. Okay, so it was over. It had just ended, yes. but, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was still going on. Oh, and everybody right. was still dealing with the issues that... You know, we're going on, uh, dealing with the effects of the war. And right. um, he, you could tell in the way that he describes characters in the story, he admires them, the people that are brave and they're, they're warlike, you know, he has a lot of admiration for and he's a little embarrassed that he can't fight with them. Right. But he has a special talent, which is that he's he's good at reading and he yes. knows history and, and he's got really keen eyes he can watch out for, uh, you know, creeps right. when they show up. Right, exactly. What's, what's really sad about this, besides the fact that he has really good vision, that's what he's good for. Uh-huh. He fails. Right. He still I fails. Know. He still feels like, he you know, he really didn't do anything and he didn't contribute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that He's seems... failing in two respects. He failed back in the past when he didn't stop this invasion from happening. Right. And then here in the present, in the dream world, other people, that, which he describes as shadows in the, in the story, right. are trying to convince him that that dream world isn't real. And he fails to convince them yeah. that something needs to be done as well. So he, yeah. ends, you know, he ends the story fairly impotent. Which actually happens quite a lot in Lovecraft's work, where yeah. you know, people are trying to change the world or, or, or save people from a horrible fate, and they just can't do it. Now, th- that was, when you were talking about previously, I mean, we brought this up in the synopsis a little bit, uh, well, the first, 
first time I read this, I didn't really understand that it was supposed to be back in time. I didn't either. I just thought it was another dimension. Yeah. And, and he was going off to the dreamlands. And now the dreamlands are something that come up in Lovecraft's work later. Yes. And I just kind of assumed that. But after reading and then reading some of the background, he talks about uh, the, the procession of equinoxes, which mm -hmm. is basically Pol Polaris's position in the sky changes you know, slowly over time, but it'll return to that same position every 26,000 years. Right, which is addressed in the poem when he yes. says six and 20,000 years have evolved and I return to the spot where now I burn. Right. So, so, so what he's saying is when he goes to sleep, he's actually traveling back in time. Right. Now, this is something that pops up again in Lovecraft's work with the uh, Shadow Out of Time story, where people not necessarily sleep, but they, their mind travels through time. And right. they go to different places. And we'll, you know, get to that. Shadow Out of Time, I love. I think it's a totally awesome, cool story. Well, now, so Lovecraft wrote a story right after this that, that we probably won't actually spend a podcast covering. Lovecraft wrote a story right after this called The Green Meadow that covers the same basic kind of concept, where these group, this group of people find a meteor that lands from outer space, and in it there's a notebook written in ancient Greek about a, a soldier or a, a gentleman who began dreaming, found himself in another place, some kind of spectral world, and right. now he's trying to communicate to the present world that we have to do something about it. Yes. It was pretty simple. It was very similar to this. Mm -hmm. It's that concept of dreams as access points. Right. That we can actually, through our dreams or by breaking away from our temporal bodies, we can visit all these other periods in history and actually influence them. In that right, 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 right. And that's a, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say common, but it does come up again. Yeah, I think that really plays into um, Lovecraft's kind of general worldview and his antipathy towards religion because it only expresses a, a desire to live beyond death. Mm -hmm. Lovecraft was an atheist, and he thought that was kind of silly to be preoccupied with just living past death. I mean, one thing that he had an issue with is the fact that we're bound by these bodies. There's this <laughs> incredible astronomical uh, stuff happening all over the place, and he'll never get to see it because he's just a human being. Uh -huh. We're just little dust specks in the cosmos. Right. You know? yeah, and, yeah. and when he writes stories like this and Whisperer in Darkness and other things like that, I mean, clearly he craves the ability to travel through space and see amazing things right. and, and travel through time yeah, and not exactly. be bounded by that. Exactly. Uh, some other stories that were written right around the same period, which we're not going to cover, but I just want to mention that he did, uh, was the reminiscence of Dr. Samuel Johnson, mm -hmm. which is uh, it's a, kind of a spoof on... Lovecraft's antiquarian affections, you know, like, right. I, and that's a direct quote from Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, I tried to read this uh, story and I found it un unbearable and uninteresting. And I, I've read it twice through right. and I still really can't even tell you what it's about. Well, it's a bit of a literary wank. I think that um, Lovecraft probably would have really wanted to meet these writers from a couple centuries ago. So uh -huh. he's got Pope in there. And Samuel Johnson is, uh, you know, he wrote the dictionary essentially. Right. Um, and and was, was well known for being a pretty crazy guy. In fact, I think that he had Tourette's syndrome. Really? Samuel Johnson. But, I, pe but I people did didn't know that. know that. Right. Obviously, at the time. Yeah. So he was just known for having fits occasionally and, and you know, being, being a little nutty. Wow. Um, but on the other end of, of this, that story uh, that I didn't like, I read uh, Sweet Ermengarde, right? Sweet, Sweet Ermengarde. Ermengarde. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really funny. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was going to say uh, we should actually do a show on Sweet I don't think it really holds a whole show. It's just funny. Yeah, it's very funny. It's a melodrama, you know, where he's got, uh, there's this, oh, also it's, he writes it under a different name. Percy Simple is oh, the name right, of the right. author, but it's, you know, it's it's Lovecraft. So if you see it and you say, oh, wait, this is written by Percy Simple, it's like, no, no. Ah, don't be tricked. Don't be tricked. It's H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. 
there's this woman and there's a guy who's got a villain who's a mortgage holder named uh, Squire Hardman and the rescuer Jack Manley and a fiance Algernon Reginald Jones. Right. But um, supposedly, um, I think Joshi points this out, that that it's a satire of this writer Fred Jackson who at the time was doing these things, but doing uh. them seriously. Okay. And so this is just him totally ripping on this guy's stuff. Well, I was—I gotta admit, I was surprised at how funny it was. It's really funny. I, just in the opening paragraph, I think he says that his daughter, uh, the main, the father is a bootlegger, and is—it's uh, after prohibition, and uh-huh. so alcohol is illegal. And his daughter's name is Ethel, and he doesn't—he can't call her Ethel because it makes him thirsty because it reminds him <laughs> of Ethel alcohol. Which I thought that was pretty funny. And then That's there's little funny. witty things in there, like she weighed 120 pounds on her father's scales. She also weighed that much off of them. Like, that's, that's pretty funny. That's a, that's a good joke. There's, it's, it's, I recommend it. It's kind of hard to find, but um, look online. Uh, I had to dig around before I actually yeah, was able to I find found it. Uh, I think it was called Wikisource, where I found the text to it. Okay. Yeah, well, so, so maybe we'll try and put that in our show notes if we can yeah. dig it up for you. Definitely. Uh, but anyway, so let's back go back to our main story, Polaris. Chad, well, you mentioned you... Uh, uh, Dreams... And how he fails. Yes. You, you mentioned how he, he failed at even that task. I thought I found this one of the more interesting parts of the story because it expresses something that most people have, which are failure dreams. You know, oh, right. Yeah. Where you, there's something that is very important that That's is charged true. to you, and for whatever reason, you're not going to be able to do it. And maybe you get right up to that moment of crisis, and then you wake up. For right. me, a lot of times, I've, I've got to go on stage, and I don't know any of my lines. Right. And all I know is i got to go. And sometimes I'm a full-grown adult, and it's in my old high school or something like right, that. Right, right, you know? yeah. Do you have any dreams Oh, absolutely, like that? yeah. Dreams where uh, you're supposed to have like work done. Like you're supposed to have right. something where, and you realize that you haven't even started it and you've got five minutes before you have to turn it in. Mm-hmm. Like, and you're helpless for some reason. Yeah, of course. Well, you just, I mean, you've got five minutes and you just you, you don't even know what the hell they're talking about. And right. so you have to figure out what they're talking about. And there's just that panic, that yeah. sense of, of dread and that you're effing up. Right. So, and, you know, this is a hard story to get through but if i talked to anybody about it and i mentioned that everybody could understand it right you know absolutely immediately in that regard um i do think him using dreams as access points to prehistory is interesting because i mean if you look at like carl jung's collective unconscious he talks about how people regardless of culture all sort of dream the same dreams have the same patterns where people will leave uh, the world that they know and I, I mean there are commonalities between dreams among all types oh, of people sure. regardless of culture or mm-hmm. language and i imagine that people dreamed the same way earlier in the history of the species even. oh sure so i, I find so. it you know neat that there's that commonality in prehistory between people in their dreams that that it, that's something that's a cross-section of all race and time really. yeah that's pretty awesome yeah i've never really really considered that before but a great it's a really cool idea and it makes me feel closer to my history yeah you know, well, uh, something else about this is uh, it is a history repeating itself in a way. I mean, I guess he's saying that because he fell asleep then and, you know, there's these Eskimos here now. Right. Um, I don't know. It reminded me a little bit of, well, the fact that he says there's all these Eskimos around and obviously nobody would know that it was because of some ancient war that happened. Right. Um, and it's sort of like now we're at war in the Middle East and a lot of that happened when the U.S. and Britain carved those countries up 100 years ago. Yeah. And we're here in this country voting people into office to take care of those problems, yet almost everybody's completely ignorant of where they all started or what our involvement Right, what yeah, how they, how they happened, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of that. But one, one of the little interesting side notes is how he talks about all you know the eskimos exist for this reason but this guy he lives in a swamp there's no eskimos anywhere <laughs> right. near a swamp well what was the what were the i mean i guess it happens occasionally where the aurora will shine in different parts of the yes. world like in low-lying lands as well, well let right? me tell you what the aurora is the aurora okay. borealis uh 
it is cosmic winds from our sun hitting the Earth's magnetic field. And then, you know, the magnetic field of the Earth looks like a big donut. And it goes, mm -hmm. the donut holes are at the poles. Right. So when those those winds hit, they, they wrap around and hit our poles and uh -huh. ignite. So it's burning oxygen in the atmosphere. And, uh, we, you know, it makes light. Now, supposedly our atmosphere will burn up eventually. Like this will eventually destroy our atmosphere. So people get ready. I think we only have a couple billion years before <laughs> our atmosphere is going to burn up. So get, you know, get everything. You go to Disneyland if that's what you got to get. Do everything you have to do before this happens. But uh, would you see it in a swamp? Well, see, here's the thing. Um, now, I'm throwing out some stuff without looking it up. But okay. I think... Do it. Go. I think in the 1700s... There was um, a solar flare that was so big that it, it, it made an aurora so big that it reached down to Rome. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's pretty far south. And it was recorded in, you know, in history. It, it was either 1700s or was it the 1200s? Don't remember. I don't know. That's still pretty amazing. Though. But still, yeah, it, was, it came that far south. I would probably have some strange dreams after seeing that I as would well. too. Yeah. I would too. Some cosmic weather. Some cosmic weather. Uh, one thing that I I liked in the um, the opening quote, and which is you know I think Lovecraft realized that that was the best piece of writing in the story because <laughs> he uses it again in the last paragraph. But he says, um, winking hideously like an insane watching eye, which strives to convey some strange message, yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. And I think that's neat because yeah. obviously a lot of the stars that we're looking at are not there actually physically anymore we're just seeing the light oh yeah right traveling but I, I like the concept of the mission without memory it reminded me of uh that ray bradbury story there will come there will come soft rains where there's been armageddon and the house continues to go on its automated chores cleaning right. up making breakfast yes. doing everything for the family but the family's dead in fact their shadowed imprints are on the yeah wall that's kind of the reveal of the, of the story is right. that they describe how there's these outlines of the children on the side of the house i don't know i thought it expressed that kind of idea where things don't remember why they're going on but they're still they have the same habits yeah. and they're moving on this the star is conveying a message but even this it's so long ago that even the, the star doesn't know sort of like, you know, animals will in a zoo will continue to trace the same patterns that they set up early in their time when they were trying to escape. They don't right. remember that they're trying to escape. They just right. walk the same path every day. Anyway, made me think of that Ray Bradbury story. I'll say that Ray Bradbury's first book was published by Arkham House. I didn't know that. Um, which was edited, which is the publishing company owned by August Erlath. Yeah. Who was a, basically, we have a lot to owe to August Erlath because without him, a lot of Lovecraft's writings might have faded into obscurity. I yeah, mean, absolutely. He was a big champion yeah. who set up all the reprints and got a lot of his... And, out there. Yeah, August Erleth also kind of ex extended the Lovecraftian mythos, the uh, the Cthulhu mythos is what, what it's called right. by most people, and he wrote more stories. Yeah. And we're sticking uh, primarily in this podcast, obviously, to H.P. Lovecraft stuff, but uh, who knows? Maybe we'll eventually go into August Erleth's uh, yeah. writings. He, I mean, he was he really kept the sharing of this mythos alive yeah. into later generations, and um, yeah, like I say, we've got yeah. a lot to owe to him. Yeah, he's... he's if if you get a chance, look him up and read a little about it. The only thing I would say about it is, if you ever tell your mom for Christmas, just buy me anything by H.P. Lovecraft, she may come home with a book that's in fact written by August Erleth, <laughs> because the guy would take some of Lovecraft's story fragments and uh -huh. go ahead and create them as his own stories, right. and then go ahead and put Lovecraft's name on them. Right, so. right. Uh, that happened to me. Oh, that story is my Chad, own. I'm sorry. It was italicized. That was the story is <laughs> your own. <laughs> uh, one other. Thing that I liked yeah. was the the concept in that same quote. Mm -hmm. I, I think everything that's great in the story is in the first paragraph. But uh, the idea of the ever watching eye, we mm -hmm. I said it earlier. That's something that creeps don't like. <laughs> like the creep who's the center of the telltale heart. 
who uh, oh, right, yeah. the reason that he ends up killing the old man in there is because he can't stand his eye looking at him. I've got a quote where he says, uh, It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Yeah. I, I feel like Poe's idea of that was in here a little bit. Oh, right, he right. About well, you know, they also... Um... Lovecraft himself says that not just Poe, but um, a little bit of Dunsany uh, mm -hmm. was going on, even though he hadn't read Dunsany yet. Oh, okay. So Lord Dunsany was uh, that influenced like his Dream World's work. Yeah. Oh, so he says that he wrote this and was surprised to see that it was very yes. much in the style of Yeah, him. and Dunsany uh, also um, followed Edgar Allan Poe also. So there's they, they're kind of looking at the same source stuff and wow. kind of coming to the same. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I even think of the raven when he says uh, the raven's eyes have all the all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. I mean, the, the raven right. is up there watching him and he knows about his despair. You know, it's that eye that can see into your soul. Ah. Gosh, that reminds me of the Great Gatsby a little bit, too. In what way? But the uh, the goggles is the big image in there. There's this billboard with these uh, oh, right. with these glasses uh -huh. on them that are sort of seeing into everybody's right. uh, personal despair. Hmm. The, uh, well, I mean, eyes are yeah. common throughout. Right. You know, it's sure. pretty common. Everybody's got them. You're right. Everybody does. Everybody can relate to eyes. <laughs> Except for all There's the There's one blind guy that just unsubscribed right now. <laughs> oh, Screw you sorry. Guys. Sorry about the people that have no yeah. eyes that are out there. Uh, I, my apologies. If you have any comments or ideas, uh, things you would like to talk about, or things that we got wrong, yeah. uh, you know, point, out, point out some stuff. Go, hey, you guys. It wasn't the 1700s when that Aurora came. It was the 1300s. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, you're not really Chris Lackey. Yeah, you're not Chris Lackey. Chris Lackey died five years ago. <laughs> what have you done with my husband? Yeah. Uh, I, no, I'm not. I'm not married. I don't know. That would just be exciting. That seems like the next, next logical thing. That give, would, give me back my son! Uh, also, um, if you would do us the, the, the favor of when you're on iTunes, uh, go and uh, give us a review. Write a little review and tell, us, tell people what you think. As long as you like the show. If you yeah. don't like the show, forget it. Just, yeah, uh, it. just don't do us that favor and don't say anything. Scream that out your window, but don't put it online. Yeah, you could scream. Even tell, tell your friends about it because your friends are probably jerks. And with that, we'll leave you for this week. Yes, uh, again, uh, next week. Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Beyond the Wall of Sleep, so read up and you know, have a good week. I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. <laughs>